and welcome to the LARB Radio Hour, brought to you by reader-supported LA Review of Books. I'm your host, Kate Wolf, and I'm joined by my co-host, Medea Ocher. Hi, Kate. Hi, Medea. And this week, we're listening to a conversation that I did with Adam Phillips, the psychoanalyst and amazingly prolific writer, about two new books he published just this year on wanting to change and on getting better. Yeah, really am very interested in it, but I've never actually read Adam Phillips's work. So I'm, I'm curious to hear your interview. Yeah, I have been a longtime admirer of Adam Phillips and have read a number of books by him. And I always enjoy his essays in the LRB. I think he's truly, truly a brilliant thinker and a, a very engaging writer, and that he makes me want to read a lot of psychoanalysis. And I think when you read a lot of psychoanalysis, you think, oh, like, if only everyone would realize these things about themselves, the world could be different. There is this utopian aspect of, of psychoanalysis, um, because I think it does show us that that we can change, maybe in more minute ways than um, we like to think, but that, yes, there's there's a lot in us if we would only recognize these kind of vulnerable, frightened, obstinate parts of ourselves, and that recognizing them is like a, a big part of how we can move through. That's what I get from it, and, and that's why I find it so brilliant. And um, Adam Phillips, in particular, his work so brilliant and, and meaningful to me. On kissing, tickling, and being bored, I believe is the first book he ever wrote, and I think it's the first book I, I read of him. And I think it's very, very good, and you would like it. Well, I'm interested in all three of those things. Um, <laughs> and, <laughs> and you are. I, <laughs> and I feel like that's like the perfect frame of, of mind to go into this interview with. So maybe we should just go listen with, with your fabulous introduction. Okay, thanks. Let's do it. to be speaking with the writer and psychoanalyst Adam Phillips today. Adam Phillips is the former principal child psychotherapist at Charing Cross Hospital in London and currently works as an analyst in private practice. He is the prolific author or co-author of 25 books, including the titles On Kissing, Tickling, and Being Bored, which is a personal favorite of mine, Monogamy, Darwin's Worms, Going Sane, On Kindness with the historian Barbara Taylor, On Missing Out, Unforbidden Pleasures, and attention-seeking. He's also edited five books and serves as the general editor of the Penguin Modern Classics Freud Translations. He is a fellow of the Royal Society of Literature and a visiting professor in the English Department at the University of York. He joins me to discuss his two latest books, both published this year, on wanting to change and on getting better. The series looks at the very human impulse towards transformation from religious and political conversion and the conversion to family life that one must ultimately emerge from, to the aims and practices of psychoanalysis, along with more quotidian ideas of self-betterment. As always in his work, Phillips attends in these books to the aspects of ourselves that can be hardest to bear and that can lead us to desire rigid structures, intellectual or otherwise, or desire to be someone else, while also quietly petitioning for a more complex and thoughtful mode of change in which As Socrates encouraged his pupils, we learn only to be ourselves. How might we get better, Phillips wonders, at talking about what it is to get better. Thanks so much for being here, Adam. Thank you for inviting me. 
So I'm curious how you arrived at the theme of conversion in on wanting to change. When I imagine so many of your readers probably have like subtler forms of change in mind, you know, just changing certain behaviors, increasing their status, becoming better people, and not this much bigger idea of like a full out conversion. Why was that an important model for you to start from? What I, what I was struck by was a sort of historical point, which is that probably a hundred years ago, if anybody described having had a conversion experience, a lot of people would take that very, very seriously. In other words, it would be an example of profound personal transformation. Whereas now, I think, an awful lot of us, whoever we are, are very suspicious of conversion experiences. So once, what was once the picture of the most profound kind of change a person could make, and indeed the most authentic kind, has become for us an object of considerable suspicion. So I suppose I was interested in two things. One is how that's happened. What's the nature of our suspicion now? And also, how do we know when we change that we actually haven't been converted? Mm -hmm. And that, of course, brings with it lots of other questions like, you know, if you have had a conversion experience, well, what's happened to the self that was there before you were converted? So I suppose it was a way into thinking about and trying to describe what now are acceptable pictures of good personal change for us. And I think that idea of just full out change as, as much as it does seem antiquated is also still very present, not only in kind of more extreme situations like conversion therapy or, you know, the conversion to a cult, but just even in the way we talk about AA, even in the way I think we talk about parenthood to some degree, this idea that you would completely change when you become a parent. I guess it's a really big question. How does psychoanalysis offer a different model of change? And does it also have its own history of thinking of cure as conversion? Yeah. Well, as you know, this is a large question. It seems to me a very striking fact of just one's experience that we are actually changing every second of our lives and we can't experience that. So change is going on all the time at a sort of biological, psychobiological level. That's just happening. And I think what psychoanalysis, I think, adds to the comment, of course, psychoanalysis is no longer one thing. So I have to talk on behalf of sort of the psychoanalysis that I do and value and so on. But I think mm -hmm. one of the things that psychoanalysis offers is a place where people can talk about the kind of change they want to make. And they can talk about why they've come to that, if you see what I mean, how it comes about that that's the kind of transformation that I desire. And also, of course, in terms of development, there are all the changes that people have been unable to negotiate in growing up. So that, you know, everybody, there is a sort of unfolding developmental sequence. People learn to, you know, crawl, walk, talk, eat in certain ways, etc. And then, of course, there's puberty. So one of the things I'm interested in, because I was, as you said, I was originally a child psychotherapist. At every developmental stage, at every transitional stage, there's often a great deal of conflict. And so what psychoanalysis offers is a kind of conversation in which such conflicts may be negotiated or discussed or elaborated or thought about. So I think what psychoanalysis brings into this very long cultural conversation, which is fundamentally about how we want to change and what's possible, psychoanalysis, I suppose, believes in the value in terms of change of articulating one's desire, what one wants, and trying to work out both what is a realistic aim for oneself and how one might go about finding that out in terms of 
experiments in living. Reading your book with these two figures of Paul and Augustine, and especially with Augustine in the garden in Milan when he has this conversion experience, I was really struck by him hearing the voice of a child and really thinking in some ways about the some form of conversion as reverting back to childhood in that we change into a very rigid stricture that tells us what we want because it's a pre-established stricture. And really thinking that in some ways that it's a form of childhood where we don't have to figure out what we want because that's determined for us for the most part. And that that is something, you know, in a sense, maybe that we all desire is to be back in that position of being controlled and being dominated and not having to decide how we want to live our lives on our own. And that seems like, oh, that actually is the hardest leap. Yeah. I mean, you could think in a way that, I mean, as partly as you've said, acculturation or growing up is, in a sense, being told what it is that one wants. But it would seem to me a lot depends upon how receptive one's parents or the world one's born into is to one's own thoughts and feelings. I mean, if your child says to you, I'm thirsty, and you say to them, you can have an apple juice or an orange juice, the question is whether the child feels they have to choose from those two options or whether they have the mental space to think of something else they might want. So there's what's inevitably imposed upon the child, but there's also what the child is able to express that is outside the range of expectation and how receptive the parents can be to that. So if the child says, actually, I'd like a glass of water, the parent might say, no, no, it's apple juice, orange juice, or the parent might go and get a glass of water. And then the child's own desire is confirmed that the child is in a world that is actually interested in what he or she happens to want. The other thing I think about the childhood bit is that, in a way, infancy and childhood is a continual process of conversion in the sense that we go from being hungry or distressed or uncomfortable to being converted by our mothers into feeling better, happier, full. So it's as though right at the beginning of our lives, we've had that rather magical conversion experience from distress or misery or hunger to some kind of satisfaction. So it's as though it's built into a growing individual's experience that somebody can do something or somebody can help you in a way that radically transforms what you're feeling. But it seems just from reading other books of yours and other writing that that relationship is always fraught. In fact, we learn that, you know, someone can't completely satisfy us, that the mother shouldn't be able to completely satisfy us because we need to go outside of the family. So in some sense, it's never a complete conversion within the family. And if it was, it would be a disaster. Yes, exactly. That what one discovers in growing up is, of course, the family can't provide everything you need. So one of the things that gets us out of the family is sex. Those are the needs the family cannot satisfy. So clearly sex is part of the growing up and leaving home story. And so, you know, it's a paradoxical thing, isn't it? Which is you begin learning what it is you want and don't want in the family. So it's where you learn both satisfaction and frustration. And then you grow up into a world that is not your family, in which is a kind of experiment in living because you've never lived outside the family until you do it. Of course, you've been to school, you meet other people gradually, but you begin having all your needs met and all your frustrations experienced in relation to that initial family group. And so there has to be frustration to get you into the future. 
because you could think when frustration is good, it's a clue about what you want, and you then go and see if you can find what you want. If frustration is too great, you simply close down, you give up on wanting, or you become cynical or despairing or enraged. So maybe that is a good time to actually ask you, because it's interesting how much Freud comes up in both of these books. And I think Freud's idea of converting sexuality into something else or having to, when you're young, sexual pleasure into psychic survival, as you say. As someone who is not a student of Freud and who is only a lay person when it comes to psychoanalysis, I think something about the sexual obsession of Freud and like this idea of sex is such a problem, you know, the violence of the primal scene. These are things that maybe to a lot of readers are somewhat alienating. But then in this book, the way you write about it, it makes a lot of sense. But that sex should be such a problem and such a thing that would haunt you or would actually develop into kind of these other symptoms is something I've never completely understood. And maybe I relate more here to when you talk about Freud's idea of pleasure not being satisfactory. I don't think that Freud is telling us the truth about ourselves. I think Freud is really only for the people who like him or who are curious about it. And I think, in a way, it's a shame that psychoanalysis got waylaid by certain ideas about sexuality. Because you could think, again, that one of the useful things that can happen in psychoanalysis is that any given individual has the opportunity to work out what kind of significance sex has for them in their lives. So rather than feeling we've been told that sex is crucial, we don't have to accept that. We can think, well, it may be, but we need to work out what it is for ourselves. And again, a good non-dogmatic psychoanalysis can help you work that out, as opposed to making you feel that you really should be a very sexually preoccupied person. You may or may not be, but you needn't be. Any psychoanalysis that is involved in telling us who we really are is the problem and not the solution. So Freud comes along and says, you know, we're driven by two instincts, a destructive instinct and a sexual instinct. Well, I think that's very interesting. I'm glad to have lived at a time where somebody's come up with those ideas, not because they're true and I can now live by them, but because they're really interesting to think about. And we can see which bits we value and which bits we don't. But it should be like that, that Freud, like everybody else who writes things, is involved in a kind of experiment in living. He's working something out. And we can then see whether he's helping us work something out or whether it's simply not for us. But so how do you integrate, you know, in your own ideas of what your version of psychoanalysis is, his ideas on sexuality or this kind of frustration when it comes to pleasure, or, you know, if we're thinking of desire, uncovering our desires is kind of the ultimate aim of what we could find in psychoanalysis. How do you relate to desire? It's very difficult, this, because if you live in a capitalist culture, and a capitalist culture is all about competition and consumption, then it is as though we're being encouraged by the cultural ethos we live in to find out what we want and try and get it, as though that's the point of life. Well, of course, there are a lot of other stories about what we might be doing in the life that is of value. And so the risk is that psychoanalysis becomes complicit with a certain kind of capitalist picture of what a person is. So as though really we're just individual hedonists. Well, from my point of view, that's a very, very bad picture because I think it's more truthful to say that we live in a commonwealth and that we are dependent creatures, that we rely on cooperation and collaboration between each other. And that the point, in a way, of a conversation is that it makes it possible to have other thoughts, other feelings. 
So the conversation for me is the point of psychoanalysis, not sex or violence or whatever, even though it seems to me clear that from a lot of modern people, those are very significant preoccupations. And you know, if you can remember this as a child or have children yourself, you know that children get very, very frustrated. Now, ideally, they learn to contain that frustration and turn it into something useful. But babies and young children get enraged when they feel frustrated or deprived. And of course, partly they should. And everything depends upon how their frustration and their rage is handled by their mothers or fathers or whoever. I can't imagine a life that doesn't have frustration in it. But I can imagine a life in which the frustration doesn't turn simply to cruelty or violence or the wish to humiliate somebody else. So it feels to me like a useful story for making the kind of world that I would like to live in. And that world would be one in which I think kindness was privileged, as in we would be able to identify with the vulnerabilities and pleasures of other people. And we would feel in some fundamental way that we're all in the same boat here, that there's much more sameness around than difference. You're listening to the LARB Radio Hour. We've been speaking with Adam Phillips, author of On Getting Better and On Wanting to Change. We'll return to that conversation in just a moment, but first we have this week's book recommendation. We have Pankaj Mishra on the line with us today. His new book is called Run and Hide. It's a novel, and he is joining us to give us a book recommendation. Pankaj, what book are you going to recommend? I'm going to recommend a book that is not as yet widely known. In fact, it's just very recently been translated from the Catalan into English. Hmm. And it's by a writer, Jose Pla, whom I think we should know more about. I have a feeling that we are going to know more about him uh, because I feel that he's one of the last great writers still as yet unknown. He did most of his writing in the first part of the 20th century. He was one of the victims of the Spanish Civil War, left the country, came back, and then wrote, worked in different genres, you know, the literary essay, political essay, he wrote uh, novellas. But he's most famous for his journals, uh, which have been collected in in, in one book, uh, translated as The Grey Notebook. It came out uh, a couple of years ago in the US, uh, translated by excellently by Peter Bush. And the book, I'm, I'm really fascinated by the book because I find that there are very few books in uh, the modern era that describe the experience of living in the provinces uh, mm-hmm. very, very uh, scrupulously as this book does. So Jose Pla grew up in the area uh, near Barcelona. And what he does in this book, he describes, by the way, he's describing part of the uh, time around the Spanish influenza in 1918. So you also get a sense Mm. of just what it was like for this, you know, global pandemic, how people responded to it. Um, But I think most importantly, the sense of life in a kind of you know, backwater town uh, in the early part of the 20th century, the peculiar institutions, the shops, the different characters in the in the small town, all of them beautifully observed and beautifully written up. He was a really tremendous prose writer, noticing everything, everything. So the book has a kind of 
hypnotic effect on you. Uh, you know, you would think holding up, holding up the book that you know, book of journal, a book of observations kept periodically over several years cannot possibly you know hold your attention for too long. Right, but this yeah. one does because you're so transported to this world that he's he's describing that is so remote from us now. Before you know, you've turned about 700, 750 pages and been entirely enchanted by those pages. I mean, I found it a great escape from this very hectic, noisy world of ours to escape into those pages of a, a slower, more languorous existence uh, where people had the time to talk to each other, to observe the quality of light on the mountains, on the sea. It's all, it's all really wonderfully, wonderfully done. Doesn't that sound wonderful? That does sound, it sounds really, really good. Pankaj, will you tell us the title of the book again and the author? The title is The Grey Notebook and the author's name is Jose Pla. Thank you so much. Thank you there. We've been speaking with Pankaj Mishra. His new book is called Run and Hide. It's a novel. You're listening to the LARB Radio Hour. We now return to our conversation with Adam Phillips, author of On Getting Better and On Wanting to Change. You know, it reminds me of there's a, on Getting Better, you open with this guy Adler who would tell his patients to kind of picture that their lives were ending and that's how they would figure out what they wanted. You know, that you write the idea of being cured as finally doing something you've always wanted to do in some ways, such a clarifying way to think about things. But then it's kind of like, what, what about when you start doing the thing that you always wanted to do? And it's still frustrating that, that we have an idea, I think, of conversion. Maybe you dispel this a little bit with Augustine, who it was more of a process of being this moment when the burden is lifted, when you don't, when you're no longer frustrated, when you're sure of everything. But that even that knowing what you want and uh, pursuing it wouldn't take away any frustration. And I think that's a very scary idea. I think the more scary idea is somebody who is offering us a life or a world in which there will be no frustration. Because it seems to me that that there's a real risk. And of course, it's a really a temptation that somebody comes along and promises us a much less frustrating life. You know, if we can get rid of gay people or Jews or black people or whatever, we will have a world we really want to live in. And it seems to me that's the danger. The promising project here is enabling people, and that means beginning with children, enabling children to bear their frustration such that it doesn't turn into rage and retaliation and only violence. It's all about how one bears the inevitable frustration of living. Because you very quickly know that when you're hungry, you don't get fed instantaneously. When you need something, it doesn't happen immediately. Your mother is not under remote control. And the point of development is being able to bear that and acknowledgement and acknowledge it and have the faith that eventually you'll get enough of what you want, as opposed to thinking you're either satisfied or having a tantrum. People can do a lot for each other. People can give each other an amazing amount of pleasure and reassurance and comfort. But of course, by the same token, people can really frustrate each other. You know, if you love somebody, they, of course, aren't going to give you the love you want all the time. And then, of course, you will hate them. 
And these two things just are inextricable. Wherever there's love, there's hate and vice versa. And those are the kind of things that I think people need, children need to be educated into and also have to live out with their parents and in their schools. Because otherwise, we get addicted to a picture, of a kind of original sin picture, which says, really, we're very violent and predatory and cruel. So it's just a question of disciplining people. Well, it isn't true that, it seems to me, that people are both, as it were, good and bad, but they're capable of tremendous kindness and goodness, and they're capable of extreme cruelty. But there are good reasons. People always do things for good reasons, even if they don't know what the re those reasons are themselves. As someone who you know, has, has studied analysis and literature so much um, and can see the, the many complexities of, of relation, that doesn't seem to be the predominant uh, discussion on the rise. I, I, I mean, even with consumer capitalism, this idea that you should be able to get what you want all the time quicker and quicker, you know, with uh, relig uh, religious and political extremism, do you feel like that is a narrative that's emerging or an understanding that's, uh, that's emerging? Is it in the same space it's always been? Yes, I think there's a tyrannical temptation to narrow one's mind to always simplify one's own complexity and the complexity of other people. And I suppose I would want to live in a world where there's the kind of parenting and the kind of educating that allows people their own complexity, as opposed to always encouraging them to narrow their minds as though essentially they're violent or essentially they're competitive or essentially they're gay or essentially they're... In other words, all the essentialisms, all the descriptions of people that are telling people who they are need to be available for conversation and argument, as opposed to being, uh, you know, forms of brainwashing. Uh, they're, they're not orders, they're suggestions. So when somebody says something that strikes you, or you read something that strikes you, you might think of it as an experiment in living, not a rule you have to abide by. It reminds me of, you know, when you're talking in the, on um, wanting to change about the free association of Freud. And, and how that was just to discover, you know, all that was in your mind, not to self-censor, to actually see how various one, one could be. Yes, exactly. And it seems to me one of the, depending on what you like, but one of the potential liberations of psychoanalysis, as everybody knows, is that you're encouraged to say, well, on the one hand, you're encouraged to say whatever you want to say, but you're also encouraged to say whatever comes into your mind. And that means then, with, in conversation with somebody else, you're then able to actually evaluate and see what you think about what's going on in your mind, as opposed to believing you already know what is valuable about yourself. And, and there is something important about being able to speak, but there's something in a way as important about somebody being wanting to listen to what you have to say. So you're free to speak, someone is free to listen, they can, as it were, digest or metabolize what you've said and say something back to you. And so it goes on. So people go on digesting each other. And that seems to me to be the collaboration. So I'm not trying to prove I'm right and you're wrong. I'm not trying to feel strong by making you feel small. I'm not believing that actually sadomasochism is the truth about life. I'm saying there can be genuine collaborations. There can be real mutuality. There can be more life in which there's less bullying. And those seem to me to be good moral aims. You mentioned Winnicott, you know, that the capacity for surprise in, in a person was very important to Winnicott. And, and it also kind of tying, you know, psychoanalysis to the capacity for developing hope. 
Maybe you could talk a little bit about about that. I guess since you treat patients, you know, if if you see that as a breakthrough for people, that suddenly they can surprise themselves uh, as as opposed to just telling the same story about themselves all the time. Yes, I think it's very important that people have or develop the capacity to surprise themselves. Because at the moment when you're surprised, it's as though you've allowed yourself, as it were, your unconscious, so that something has been freed in you. And the the reason I value Winnicott, I think, is because Winnicott is genuinely interested in helping people find out what, if anything, makes their lives worth living. So Winnicott doesn't take it for granted that we all want to live and we all enjoy life and that life is a wonderful thing. He says it's a question. He says at one point somewhere that if someone comes to him and says they want to commit suicide, he doesn't try and dissuade them He just tries to help to make sure they do it for the right reason, their right reason. So it seems to me this is a genuine, in Winnicott, it's not only in Winnicott, but in Winnicott, there's a genuine exploration of what for any given individual are genuinely sustaining pleasures. And and for Winnicott, there's something to do with reliable dependence and a, a belief in a sort of facilitating environment, that there are people with whom or relationships in which you can grow and develop. I was wondering, you know, when you work with patients and working with them on the things that stand between, you know, what they what they want and how to get those things, uh, if you have things that you fall back on often to, to try to evaluate that, or is it always a, a discovery with each patient? Are there, are there certain... I think probably what I fall back on, so to speak, is the assumption that people actually often don't know what they want and that knowing what you want may, that, that in a way the problem is believing that you know what you want. And of course, that's what we're encouraged to do in capitalist culture is to know what we want. And then the only question is, how do, you know, how do we get it? Have we got the money? Have we got the wherewithal? Have we got the cleverness to get it? Whereas the kind of psychoanalysis that I value says that actually people are quite frightened of wanting and that they often displace their wants and that it's quite difficult for people to work out what they want. And sometimes people have to experiment with wants because they don't know. So that it's as though wanting is opened up. It's not a question of finding out what you want and then trying to get it. It's actually finding out that wanting is itself quite difficult. And there are quite a lot of conflicts involved in it. And there are quite a lot of complicated feelings involved in it. And, and it's not simply about, um, you know, it's not about working out what you want and seeing if you can find somebody who will give it to you. It could be the case that actually relationships are not for gratifying needs. They're about for finding out together what your needs might be. In your own life, because from the outside, of course, you know, I as someone who, you know, wants to write, would look at you and say, oh, you've written so many books. You obviously have something figured out. You have figured out how to do uh, what you want. Would I be right in assuming that? Is that is that something, at least in your work, that you have kind of uh, made a structure for you to do what you want to do? No, not really. It doesn't feel. I mean, it doesn't feel like that. If you see what I mean. I mean, I think I've been very fortunate in many ways, um, in the sense that I think my desires and needs and wishes have been backed, and I've had the fortune to have a certain kind of education, all that sort of thing. I think. The writing was something, I never wanted to be a writer. It was never an ambition. I wanted to be a reader. And I kind of stumbled upon writing because somebody commissioned me to write something. And then I found that I loved doing it. 
And then it literally had its own momentum. So it wasn't as though the project, my project was to write. Um, it was that actually what I really wanted to do was be a child psychotherapist, which is what I trained to do. And then I came upon the writing. It gives me a huge amount of pleasure to do it. So I do it because I enjoy it and because it interests me a lot. I find it really enlivening. But that's like a piece of luck. For me, it's a bit like, you know, having red hair. I just happen to be able to do it <laughs> and I can do it. Um, and that's just a huge piece of luck. That's what it feels like. But I've been fortunate enough to have, you know, the, the, the family and friends. And of course, it's not, it's not, this is not an idyll I'm describing. It was as, you know, it's as difficult in some ways as anybody else's life. But nevertheless, through a combination of luck and desire, I've been able to do a lot of things in my life that I like and value. And it's been mostly really to do with relationships. You, you mean personal relationships or? I think that my, yes, that my life came out of my friendships and my loves, really. That the people that I happen to meet and the people that I happen to love and get or get on with and or like, it was that that made things possible in me. Because it seems to me that you know, a relationship's only worth really worth having and it brings out the best in both of you. Well, I've been lucky enough to have relationships that have brought out the best in me, I think. I don't know what the best is, but I've certainly managed to do things that I value and enjoy. And that, right. obviously, is hugely lucky. I know that, for instance, you know, you have famously, you write on Wednesdays. That's something I've, I've read many a time and that you don't do email. Um, is that setting up some kind of kind of stricture of your own, some rigidity around it. So you, not that you were converted into being a writer, but that you have figured out a structure for how to, for how to do it. Do you think that that has been really important to the work? I think, yeah, I think there's been a bit of that, but it's not, it's been much more pragmatic than self-disciplined because I originally wrote on Saturdays and then when I had children, I wrote on Wednesdays. <laughs> and I think I've been very unwilling to take myself too seriously as a writer or rather, I don't want to be precious about it. I just want it to be one of the things that I do that matters to me a lot, but I didn't want to be a writer with a capital W at all. I never have really wanted that. To some extent, I've been able to organize a working life in which I can do the things that I value. And obviously you have to have time, you have to make time. And you know, I've never wanted more time to write because what seems to work is that I limit the time so that I know and I think in a way this kind of unconscious preparation goes into this, that on Wednesday morning I will write. And so I'm sort of orientated towards that, and it works for me. I suppose one of the things that I value in psychoanalysis, if, you know, if the question is, what are the aims of psychoanalysis? Well, there are as many aims as there are individual people. But one of the things that I value is people's capacity to forget themselves, to be able to be absorbed in something. I think that when psychoanalysis works, it enables people to lose interest in themselves and be really interested in other people in the world outside. That when people are depressed or anxious or whatever, of course, they're self-obsessed. They have to be. They have to think about themselves. And ideally, what a psychoanalysis does is it frees people to lose interest in themselves. I mean, I, that also seems to be the appeal in, in some ways of conversion, that that you would become so embroiled in um, like a you know certain ideology that you that you would also lose yourself, but you would also just never find yourself, and that that would be the problem. Yes, or that then you might not worry about you know yourself, so to speak. It might not be a preoccupation. I mean, I suppose that's why the 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 last chapter in on getting better is on William James, because William James suggests 
And it seems to me this is rather wonderful. Not that you convert to something and then you've, as it were, solved all your life problems, so much as that you become, as it were, a serial converter, that your life is a series of temporary provisional conversions. So right. that you don't get fixated on a specific ideology or religion, but you're open. You have a capacity to be receptive to the things and people that you're interested in, that you're moved by, that matter to you. And that, of course, it moves, it changes, you evolve. So you're not looking for the solution. You're looking for, te as it were, temporary solutions. And you know that other things will turn up that you'll need further solutions to. And the life is not only a problem-solving exercise. It seems that if we think that we can want something and have it, if we think that we arrive at a, a certain state and stay there, that, that we'll always be disappointed because it, it, it must evolve. There's no other way. Yes, and we know just from our own experience that we want, we've wanted and been satisfied by different things and people at different stages in our lives. And we have to allow for that. You know, we, we do develop, we do um, change, and that therefore all that involves our desires and wishes and wants changing. I think that's a good, good place to leave it, that, that we will change and, and that that's um, as it should be. So... Adam Phillips, <laughs> thank you so much for joining us. Well, thank you very much. It was a very interesting interview. I've been speaking with Adam Phillips. His two latest books are On Wanting to Change and On Getting Better. Thanks for listening to the LARB Radio Hour. Subscribe to our show on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Spotify, wherever else you get your podcasts. If you like the show, please rate us on Apple Podcasts to help us get the word out, and we'd love to hear from you. The producers of the LARB Radio Hour are Medea Ocher, Kate Wolf, and Eric Newman. Our executive producer is Alan Minsky. Our sound engineer is William Broaden. Editorial production by Jake Levins. Our intro music was written and performed by Imogene Teasley-Vladen. Mm -hmm.